0: I'm Susan Moran.
1: And I'm Joel Parker. And this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, August 18th, 2015.
0: Coming up, geography professor Mark Williams of CU Boulder will discuss the science and politics of the recent toxic spill from the gold mine near Silverton, and what can be done to prevent other such disasters at many other mines throughout the state and the West.
2: And good news is that uh, this spill has brought attention to a very serious problem that's happening throughout the western U.S.
1: We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science.
0: Like humans, some other animals are suckers for romance. Octopuses, for instance... In recent research, a group of scientists has revealed an odd set of mating behaviors in one species of octopus. That species is the larger Pacific striped octopus. These eight-limbed creatures live off the west coast of Latin America and Mexico and, as their name suggests, they look a bit like zebras of the sea. They're also so new to science that they don't even have a scientific name yet. But what's so odd about these animals? They're, well, nice to each other. For octopuses, mating is usually an awkward event. In many cases, males will stay as far away from females as possible, using their stretchy tentacles to pass sperm to their partners from a ways off. Not so, though, the larger Pacific striped octopus. In the new study, scientists recorded these animals as they reproduced in a lab. And it was an intimate display. Rather than keep their distance, the sea critters mated with each other in a mouth-to-mouth, or in octopus-speak, beak-to-beak position. Females frequently enveloped males in their tentacles, too. In fact, during the couplings, the females grabbed on so tightly that they left sucker marks on their mates, a sort of underwater hickey. The researchers described these behaviors, which had never before been seen in octopuses, last week in the journal PLOS One.
1: Rising global temperatures since the Industrial Revolution cannot be attributed to increased solar activity. That's the conclusion of research that was presented at a recent meeting in Hawaii of the International Astronomical Union, known as the IAU. The sunspot number, which is a measure of the number of sunspots and groups of sunspots present on the surface of the sun, is a crucial tool to study the solar dynamo, space weather, and climate change. It now has been recalibrated and shows a consistent history of solar activity over the past few centuries. It shows no significant long-term upward trend in solar activity since 1700, as was previously indicated. The newly corrected sunspot numbers now provide a homogeneous record of solar activity dating back some 400 years. Climate models will need to be re-evaluated, giving this new picture of the long-term evolution of solar activity and its decreased impact on climate change. The results have been published in the journal Space Science Reviews. Another presentation at the IAU meeting showed that scientists are tapping into photographs taken by astronauts aboard the International Space Station to measure the amount of light pollution worldwide. This study not only includes the well-known signatures of cities and streets, but also the effects of faint, indirectly scattered light, which up to now has not been measured quantitatively. The new results confirm that this diffuse glow which is seen from space is scattered light from streetlights and buildings, and this component is responsible for the brightening of the night skies in and around cities, which drastically limits the visibility of faint stars and the Milky Way. For more results from the International Astronomical
0: Union meeting, go to iau.org. And now for some items on the science calendar. This Thursday evening at the Denver Nature and Science Museum, check out the Adult Science Lounge. The theme is Toxic Fun. The event features museum's current exhibit on Poison. So be brave and venture through a literally intoxicating and educational exhibit. How often do you hear education and intoxication in one sentence? On that note, Great Divide Brewing Company will offer a custom-crafted brew, so come check it out at the Denver Museum of Science this Thursday at 6.30. To attend, you'll need to be 21 or older. Tickets and more information at dmns.org.
1: Also, today and tomorrow are the last days to catch a movie in the Fisk Planetarium Full Dome Film Festival. These films are specially designed and filmed for a 180-degree full-dome viewing experience. Some titles include Bella Gaia, Dark Universe, Dinosaurs at Dusk, and many, many others. Check out the lineup at FiskFest.com. Wait.
0: Wait. The corpse is about to bloom. Okay, I know that sounds weird, but it's true. The infamous corpse flower, known for its distinct odor, likened to a rotting dead body, is set to bloom any day now at the Denver Botanical Gardens. Don't miss your chance to see this five feet tall beast of a flower, lovingly nicknamed Stinky. If you can't get to the garden, or you're not morbidly curious about the event, You can check out the streaming live feed of Stinky's Progress on the Botanical Gardens homepage at botanicgardens.org. You're listening to KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. By now, you've probably read and heard, including here on KGNU, about the recent toxic spill from a gold mine near Silverton, Colorado. On August 5th, Gold King Mines portal spewed more than 3 million gallons of toxic sludge and wastewater into a creek that feeds into the Animas River. The toxic blob turned the river a surreal orange-yellow hue, some called it like American cheese, for a couple of days. And although the color has returned to its normal clarity, many concerns remain about the health of the water, including drinking water, way downstream. Here to shed some light on how this disaster happened, what it suggests about many other precarious mines in the state, and for that matter, throughout the West, and what should be done to prevent such disasters from happening, we have Dr. Mark Williams. He's a professor of geography at CU Boulder and an expert in mountain hydrology and hydrochemistry. And he's worked on several uh, remediation ca- cases in mines throughout the state. He's also a fellow at INSTAR, the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research. Dr. Williams, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. So first, just give us a sense of h- how bad in historical context was this spill?
2: Uh, this was just a pulse. Uh, this type of stuff has been happening for 100 plus years. Uh, There was an article in the Durango paper, I think, 1899, where the people were pissed off, sorry, at uh, people in Silverton. (laughs) We
0: can say that. (laughs)
2: uh, Dumping toxic water into the Animas River.
0: And that was at the heart of the rush, right? So that was, again, just one example of many back then. And and what about continuing over the decades?
2: And uh, so these types of pulses happen uh, or have happened in the past, in the last couple of decades, They will most likely happen again. Uh, But there are things that we can do if uh, people let those things happen. And so this isn't just a case of economic exploitation. It's also a case of uh, local and uh, state and national politics.
0: Yeah, so first a little more about the spill itself. I mean, you're saying there are many more like it, and we can get to some of those cases. This was so distinctly, disgustingly colored <laughs> that turned that Animas River into something you wouldn't want to kayak. But I'm sure people have seen the photographs of people actually kayaking in that. I thought it kind of looked like butternut squash soup, but that sounds a little too culinarily pleasing. Um, it was pretty disgusting. But not all the spills, and as you said, there have been many this size, not all are like that. What made this one this color?
2: Yeah, the color was just amazing. I, I kind of think of it as Donald Trump's hair. <laughs> <laughs> Very distinctive. And uh uh it really brought attention to this problem. Uh that color actually is iron oxides, which are characteristic of almost every uh acid mine drainage situation uh in the state.
0: And it's basically water and air
2: and iron with the metals and iron yeah and in particular uh, a certain metal iron uh, that precipitates out what was amazing on this is that this mass uh, stayed coherent and consistent over 60 70 miles normally it would be diluted pretty quickly and disappear even though that toxic sludge would still be coming down you wouldn't be able to see it but for whatever reason uh, part of it's because the river was at low flow Mm -hmm. it it really stayed uh, coherent for quite a distance
0: in fact, the Navajo Nation has sued the EPA, I and mean, they're feeling effects in their drinking water way down in the San Juan River. There have been some reports that there have been some contamination signatures in Lake Powell.
2: Yeah, it's right? going to get all the way to Lake Powell, but um, it's being diluted as it goes down. And again, it was just a pulse uh, that lasted a couple hours at most sites.
0: A pulse as opposed to a continuous
2: stream? Right. And that's what the EPA was trying to fix, is that out of the uh, Gold King mine, there was a continuous stream coming out, but at a uh, a much lower uh, discharge rate, about 500 uh, gallons per minute.
0: Yeah, and as you noted, so it was EPA contractors who were in there trying to fix the problem, and pretty unfortunate that that's what happened.
2: So these are just really tough situations. You're, uh, you have mine spills, you have... Um, Cave ins in these mines, they're really dangerous places to work. On top of that, you're at ten thousand, eleven thousand feet. Uh we're an area that gets thirty feet of snow a year. So it's just a tough place to work. So a little bit of sympathy uh to the EPA and their contractors. But this was on the EPA's watch, they own this.
0: Yeah, but it is something that sounded like it was an accident waiting to happen with so much buildup. I mean, explain some about, since you're the hydrology expert, some about the hydrology and the anatomy of these kind of mines that are clustered so closely together, upstream, downstream, so to speak.
2: Yeah, so this goes back decades. Uh, The last operating mine in Silverton out of about 400 was the Sunnyside that uh, stopped operation, I believe, 1991, somewhere right around there. And there was toxic waste coming out of the American Tunnel, which is at the bottom of uh, Bonita Mountain. And they were treating it. And Explain so explains,
0: to people may not know where these are. It's just one is above the other, sort of like a four-story building or something?
2: We haven't quite got there yet. This <laughs> is just uh, on Cement Creek above the town of Silverton. And so uh, at the bottom of the mountain, uh, there was a draining at it. And the state of the art, unfortunately, is when you have acid mine drainage and you're worried about it, you collect it, put it in a pipe, pipe it to a treatment plant, and treat that water treatment
0: plant nearby you're not talking municipal
2: no you have to uh, build one specific for that somewhere around a million dollars or no somewhere around uh, 10 million dollars
0: and this one did not have that
2: no it did and a million dollars a year or so to operate and uh, uh sunnyside corporation was like tired of paying that money out to operate it so they worked out a deal with the state against epa opposition to a bit of put a bulkhead in uh, to essentially plug uh, the American tunnel. EPA asked them not to do that, or if they did it, to have a backup plan because we all knew what happens. You put a plug in a bathtub, water rises. I mean, that's like not rocket science. (laughs) And uh, state allowed uh, Sunnyside to put in that plug and walk away and not have to treat the water because now it wasn't coming out. And yeah, so uh, then that, the analogy I use is Bonita Mountain is like a, a big um, building. You got snow melt and rain coming in the top and then flowing out the bottom. You plug it up, water's going to rise in that building. And it's gonna, it rose up to the Red and Bonita mine and started flowing out of there. <clears throat> and then it rose up further into the Gold King mine and started flowing out of there. And again, the EPA knew this was going to happen. They asked the citizens of Silverton to uh, declare this a Superfund site, which frees this is up. way
0: back in the mid-90s or so, right?
2: Starting in the mid-90s, but going over the last uh, almost 15 years, continuously asking for Superfund status because that frees up enough money to do uh, a targeted remediation program that will work. The EPA knows how to do this. I have a lot of confidence in them. I've worked with them on a number of sites. Mm-hmm. And uh, the state didn't do that. Uh, these other mines started to leak now. Big problems and so they were in the process of not working in the Gold King but working in the Red and Bonita and putting in a bulkhead there uh, to stop that from flowing and we're just doing baseline uh, information gathering at the Gold King.
0: And even at its best is a bulkhead considered a stopgap measure?
2: No it's if there's enough of them it, it'll work. Uh, Mary Murphy mine uh, out of uh, Buena Vista Mm -hmm. You know, we put one in there just a year ago, and that's working. Uh, But it's amazing how far the water rises. In the uh, Mary Murphy, it's now risen 900 feet in a year and a half. Wow.
0: So what could have prevented this then, sort of from an engineering standpoint?
2: Yeah, well, the problem is uh, one of my contributions to mountain hydrology is, is I've been on the forefront of showing that groundwater is actually more important in mountains than we thought. Uh, in the past we thought these were teflon basins. snow melts just runs in the streams you don't have to worry about groundwater i've been able to show that groundwater is really important and uh what we've done here with mining is poke holes in the mountains and that complicates understanding what's going on but in particular what all these holes do and there's hundreds if not thousands of mine shaft windsus stopes and other these holes. are
0: mining terms for different kinds of channels? Or? Yeah, different, yeah. different the, kinds of holes. In the rock.
2: In the rock. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the mining vocabulary is actually pretty <laughs> fascinating. A water, uh, the entrance to mines called an adit. So for your uh, crossword puzzle fans, <laughs> that, they ask that a lot. Uh, so what we've done is we've increased the hydrologic connectivity in that mine by putting in all these shafts.
0: And so by increasing that connectivity, you also have water, sort of wastewater, that's more easily going to be oozing from one to another, right?
2: Exactly. And the hope here in terms of a treatment strategy is um, you plug up enough of these draining addits in other places, you raise the water table to historical levels, that is, where it was before mining started, and you're going to dilute a lot of those trace metals. And so... uh, that problem is going to decrease because you've had added a lot more groundwater to the system, and you've diluted uh, those trace metal concentrations.
0: Yeah, and a little more on on this spill. So I, I'm sure many more studies will be done, but it seems like the initial ones, anyway, about fish, were that these lean fish seem to be normal. That said, <laughs> oh. I'm sure there's plenty yet to come. I mean, what what do you fear could be the worst of it from a human health and aquatic health and.
2: Uh, uh, As I said before, this is just a pulse. It's pretty much gone. Uh, I think you can go out in the uh, Animas River and fish and eat the fish and be fine. Um, It's within historical perspective. This is not a big deal. The good news, though, is it's focusing on a problem that we have in in, uh, the western U.S. with this acid mine drainage where we have a number of mines that need to be cleaned up. Um, uh, The Nelson Commodore outside of Creed. Um, and where
0: is that, roughly, geographically?
2: That's about uh, an hour and a half uh, drive from Silverton. Right. And and there's plenty of others. Leadville, uh, drainage tunnel, I've worked on that with the EPA. That's a serious problem. And that's that
0: one that's already a Superfund site. It, and right? it's already
2: a Superfund. It needs more uh, remediation. And so, as I said, the good news is it's bringing attention to areas where there's similar type problems that could happen in the future.
0: Boy, and... um. The numbers vary, but I've read and I think it's EPA or Bureau of Land Management's own figures that there's something like 500,000 abandoned mines in the country. And we have abandoned and also those that are owned, but non-operational at this time. But so let's take 500,000 throughout the West, more than 23,000 in Colorado alone. And the state agencies have said that about Maybe more than 200 of them are deemed quite problematic from a water contamination standpoint, and yet there's an agency with one person in charge of <laughs> overseeing abandoned mines. I mean, again, are we sitting on a ticking time bomb?
2: We, we are. So things uh, like this is, are going to happen in the in the um, future, and again, it's a political problem. In this particular case, with the Gold King, uh, the citizens of Silverton did not want it to be declared a Superfund site. There's other politics because a lot of these mines are uh, on uh, different federal um, agencies' properties. Right, Forest forest Service. Forest Service, BLM, Bureau of Rec. And getting those different groups to talk to each other can be very difficult as well.
0: Who knew? So we've got a couple minutes left. I wanted to ask you about um, solutions longer term. There has been sort of renewed momentum to get this very antiquated 1872 (laughs) mining law Dramatically overhauled, and in fact, there's a Democrat um, congressman, Raul Grijalva, who's introduced it. Introduced it earlier this year, and Tom Udall, and Heinrich are behind it in in New Mexico. What what does it look like? What would it look like? How would things? Well, well, the idea
2: there is that there are no royalties paid uh, on mining activity. It's free and clear. Whereas you know, if we go sell a hamburger, we got to pay. you pay sales tax on that. And so, if we can uh, rewrite that rule so that current mining activity uh, pays taxes on that or royalties, that could go into a fund to um, uh, do targeted remediation and control on these abandoned uh, mining sites.
0: Because right now, without royalties, there may be some small bonds that the companies have to pay, but pretty much they can walk away, as they did in Leadville and other cases, and jump ship, go to Canada, and start back <laughs> up in Mongolia or elsewhere. So, so you're
2: thinking of Summitville, but that's a, that's a different situation. Uh-huh. So those are performance bonds for current mining activity that are totally inadequate right now. Summitville, uh, they put a four million dollar bond, walked away when their problem EPA is now paid over 200 million dollars to remediate that site what we're talking about here is increasing royalties that would go into a fund to fix abandoned sites that are somewhere different than the mining activity
0: and finally are you very hopeful this will happen this overhaul
2: oh I doubt that it's gonna happen but I think there will be more funds uh, brought to uh, uh, do targeted remediation at some of these sites
0: well thank you dr. Williams for coming on the show Thank you. That was Dr. Mark Williams, a professor of geography at CU Boulder and an expert in mountain hydrology and hydrochemistry.
1: That's all for this edition of How on Earth.
0: Our executive producer is yours truly, Susan Moran. Thanks to Joel Parker, Daniel Strain, and Kendra Kruger for headline contributions. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler, and additional music from R.E.M.
1: Can't listen to How on Earth at a regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button.
0: Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran.
1: And I'm Joel Parker.